Welcome back to Boot Camp, Parashat Vayishlach, Tufshin Payal of 2020. We again thank our season sponsors, Alana Mark Rothenberg and Rachel Feiner, Lilo Nishmas Azriel Benyako Feiner. We have many sponsors this week, learning in memory of Marvin Cohn, and they'll be listed in the Shabbat notes in the WhatsApp group. We also want to thank our additional sponsors, Fagy and Stanley Fishman and Brendan Mark Schwartz. I want to look at three stages of this parsha. We're going to begin with Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. Yaakov sending the Malachim, the angels dash men, we'll discuss this, to Esav, seems to be his hated brother at this point. We're going to focus on stage two, the angels or the men, coming back with a report, a terrible report. Esau is coming after you, Yaakov, with 400 men. And then finally, stage three, the person-to-person meeting between Yaakov and Esau. Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. Were these angels or were these men? Many of the Rishonim, the Ibn Ezra, the Radak, assume, as Pashupshad, as plain meaning would generate, that we're talking care about men. The Radak says specifically these were men who were trained with the ability, with the talent apparently, maybe professional mediators who could help reconcile this long lost relationship between Yaakov and Esau. Rashi is pushed in a different direction. And this is what every kid learns in yeshiva. These were real angels. The angels from Hashem were now in the power of Yaakov and sent to Esau to try to bring them closer to each other. And obviously to save Yaakov's skin and the family's lives. What compelled Rashi, based on a medrash, of course, to take such a position? The Guri one of the great commentaries on Rashi, we call him a super commentary. He's known better as the Maharalmi Prague, but he also wrote a very fundamental commentary on Rashi. And he says Rashi is pushed into this by Smichot Parshiot. If we look at the very end of last week's Parsha, and we did this last week in boot camp, there were special angels that were sent for Amashem to greet Yaakov and to bring Yaakov back to Eretz Yisrael. What Yaakov Avinu decides to do, following this thesis of the Guriarye, is he says, let's pay this forward. Let's take these same angels that started the process of bringing me back home. And we know that angels are supposed to have one fundamental role. As part of that role and mission of bringing me back home, I have to deal with my brother Esau. I am going to now take those same angels and use them, these heavenly beings, to bring me together back to my brother. It's a very beautiful idea. First of all, Yaakov, who has this capacity and has this power, but also the idea of taking something that was already used for the good, for the same mission, and expanding it. But we're left with an obvious question, because whether we were talking about human beings or angels, and we could add, as some of the commentaries do, that Yaakov was concerned about the safety of human beings if he would have used them as messengers in front and confronting the fearsome Asaph. So he uses angels. But either way, and let's focus on the angel approach, and this is what I asked the Gorarie if I had the opportunity to speak to him, 
it didn't work because we have stage two. Stage two is when these angels actually come up to meet Esau. And the assumption of most of the Rishonim is that they engage Esau. It doesn't stop Esau from fighting, or at least for having the desire to fight his brother. So it's a failed attempt. Human beings wouldn't have worked, but even angels didn't work. But I think there's a very important message here. And the message is that when you have people, especially family members that are in conflict, what we often see happen is maybe because they don't have the courage or maybe because of the past or maybe even with fully positive intent, they engage a third party to try to bring them together. And it never works. At least I've never seen it work. You could have a third party who's a mediator, who is talented with a gift from Hashem and with great training to be able to bring people together in the same room. But to expect a third party, even an angel, to bring people that should be close to each other but are enemies, it just doesn't happen. And therefore, it's only once we get to the third stage, when Yaakov and Esau have face-to-face contact, do we see a reconciliation. As short-lived as maybe it was, but at least it existed, and it stopped further pain, Yaakov survived. Esau went on his way. Friendship requires face-to-face contact. I have many other examples of this. We'll leave to another time. I'll just mention one. Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach said when it comes to Purim, Mishloach Manos does not mean to send through a shliach. We're trying to create a bond, friendship between two people, especially people that may have been in conflict with each other and to reconcile through the Chag of Purim face-to-face. That's the ideal way. Let's move on to a Hasidic master. We've seen Rashi, the Radak, the Ibn Ezra, the Guriari, classic commentaries. Let's go to a Hasidic master who has a very special connection to Hanukkah that's coming up. And his name, or at least the way he's known, is the Bnei Yisachar, or the Bnei Yisachar. That was not the name that was given to him by his mother. The Bnei Yisachar is Ripsvi Elimelech Shapiro of Dinov, was born in the late 18th century, close disciple of the Choser of Lublin, Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Karowitz, anyone who's a descendant of Munkach or Dinov and associates with that Hasidus, they originally come from Rav Tzvi Elimelech Shapiro, at least his influence. And he was given the name of the Bnei Yisachar by his Rebbe, the Chos of Lublin, who had a sense that this great master was a descendant of Shevet Yisachar. You see, what happened was, the Bnei Yisachar, before he was given this name, he always felt a special connection to the Chashmanayim, to Hanukkah. He had great insights into the Chag of Hanukkah. Maybe we'll mention some next week or in the future. He knew he couldn't be a descendant of the Chashmanayim because the Chashmanayim, as we know, did not leave any descendants, an important historical note. And sure enough, his Rebbe told him, you are a descendant of masters of the Chagim. We know from a medrash from Divrei Ayyamim, we don't have time now to go into details, that the Shevet of Yisachar were the specialists when it came to interpreting deep meanings of Rosh Chodesh and the other Chagim. And therefore, the Rebbe says, you must be a descendant of Yisachar. He takes on the name Bnei Yisachar. Very fascinating history. 
He has another sefer which was put together by his Talmidim. Unfortunately, most of his works were lost. And this work, called the Igra Dikala, which we have available, on Parshish Vayishlach, he has a very strange, at least on the surface, interpretation. When it comes to stage two, and the Malachim come back, angels or human beings, it doesn't matter in this situation, and they come back with a negative report. Yaakov listens to the report. He obviously plans based on what he heard. And the Rebbe asks a question. How is it possible that these angels were able to speak Lashon Hara, or these human beings were able to speak Lashon Hara about Esav? And more importantly, how was Yaakov able to be Makabel the Lashon Hara, that your brother's coming to kill you? Now, if we would stop right here, we would say, this is a ridiculous question. We're talking here about Pikuach Nefasha, saving the lives. For that, you're not allowed to listen to Lashon Hara. So obviously what the Rebbe does, and you have to look inside, I'm happy to share the sources with you. He takes this as an opportunity to discuss the topic of slander. And he says, clearly, this is a situation where even a tzaddik like Yaakov has to listen to Lashon Hara. Don't think it's Lashon Hara. It's actually Lashon Tov. It prevents killing. And people have to know when to invoke the banner of it's Lashon Hara, and I won't listen. He uses as an example in the story from Yirmiyahu, the famous story of Gedalia ben Achikam, who denied the reality that a Jew would kill another Jew. And therefore, he ends up being assassinated himself and the destruction, not only of independence in the land of Israel, but his own self-destruction. On the other hand, what the Rebbe here is also pointing out is don't be so fast to say, but I'm allowed. There have to be calculations. There has to be calculations that are taken. It's easy to say, ah, in this situation, I need to listen to slander. Yaakov was allowed to because this is a question of life and death. Obviously, situations, abuse, a person is going to be ripped off, you have to listen to. But what the Rebbe here is invoking is that at the outset of the Torah and Sefer Bereshit, you sit down at your Shabbos table and you have a discussion. When are we allowed to speak Lashon Hara? When are we prohibited? Many times, many of us go in the opposite direction. When we have to listen to it or have to speak it, we say, no, it's Lashon Hara, and innocent people are hurt. And when we're not allowed to, we end up doing it. And many, many innocent people are hurt as well. If you want further analysis of this whole situation, you look into the Messias Yashar and Perak with Rav Lutzato, and the Perak, I think it's the most important Perak of the Messias Yashar and B'mishkach Hasidus discusses these issues. He doesn't invoke Yaakov. He does invoke the Gedalia ben Achikam story. So we are learning so much from this encounter, from the preparation for the encounter, for the encounter itself, which leads us to further analysis of this final step. When Yaakov and Esau finally get together, I came across an incredible set of svarim, and this brings us to a contemporary teacher, the name of the Sefer is the Sefer Melitz Yosher, actually many Svarim, written by Rav Ruven Malamed, who was a prized Talmud of Rabbi Cheska Levenstein. Like Rav Levenstein, he started in the Mir Yeshiva in Europe, he goes to the United States, and finally in Eretz Yisrael, becomes a Rosh Yeshiva of a major institution 
It's the lower division of the Panovich Yeshiva, has thousands of students, unfortunately never had his own children. And he left us these beautiful svarim. I have a lot more to say about them. Just incredible insights, developed formulations. And he has such a phenomenal point on the reconciliation, what seems to be a beautiful, happily ever after, until we know the rest of the story, between Yaakov and Esau. And first he approaches it from a more cynical perspective, and then we'll end with a more positive approach. You know, Yaakov comes in a somewhat passive way. He is prepared to fight, but he sends him gifts. And Esau suddenly is warmed up. The question that he raises, Rav Malamed raises, is over 30 years, Esau has been after Yaakov. He has a different ideology, a different approach to life. He's dead set on making Yaakov dead. And Yaakov shows him some honor, some kavod, and all of Esau's ideology falls away. So this first approach, somewhat of a cynical approach, is look how shallow people are. They have such approaches in life, so well thought out, and someone gives some chanifa, some kavod, and they fall away. And the challenge that Rabbi Malame presents to all of us is that when we have an ideology, do we actually stand up for it? Or do we easily bend? We're not Asaf. We have great ideologies. But what happens for money, for honor, for our egos? Do we easily compromise because someone shows us some honor, some pressure to move in a different direction? Or do we still stand up for what we believe in? Amazing opportunities to look at this Parsha, not just for the story of Yaakov and Asa, but how we deal sometimes with people that are trying to influence us in what is not our ideology. But he also says there's something very positive to learn. And this is the way I'd like to conclude. He says that there's a fine line in this role between the Tzaddik and the Russia. Because you see over here that Esau, with all his rants, with all his anger, in the face of his brother, and this brings us full circle, he has Rachmanus. And he says the major difference between a tzaddik and a rasha is where is the Rachamim point? You see, with a tzaddik, it's very easy to get Rachamim from the tzaddik because they're filled with Rachamim. But even a rasha has mercy. Every human being is created with mercy in them. It's just tragic that it's so deep down and you live your life in such an evil way in this situation, Asaph. But what this story proves is that with all the cynicism, with all the fear, deep inside of Asaph, there was greatness and there was mercy. And at this moment of seeing his brother and seeing that his brother wants to have a peaceful encounter with him, with full sincerity, he spills over with his mercy, and he's able to hug. Hopefully, we don't have to go this far, and we should always see mercy with each other, reconciliation, connection, face-to-face, and be inspired by our great masters, and of course, by our avot and our imahot. Have a great Shabbos.